I guess usually when I start a podcast, I, I, I talk about how bad things are, but since this is kind of a sad topic, maybe I should talk about something that, that makes people happy. It's been a pretty dark time lately. Uh, not a ton. Uh, Monet Davis, pretty cool. Did you guys see her? No, I don't know. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, she's the, she's the girl. She pitched a shutout in the like little league World Series, and then like she's a fucking badass in some interviews. They let girls in the little league World Series now. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Colin? How do you feel about the segregation of sports? I am... I don't know. I think, like, it makes sense. Like, women's bodies don't work really the same way in an athletic setting the way men's do. Obviously, it's it's hard to make the case that, in a general sense, they would be uh, kind of comparable and there would be a good competition there so i don't know but i feel like if you do it on a sport by sport basis like baseball i mean women can play baseball there's big fat guys playing baseball so yeah i guess i mean maybe not football there, there I feel is like a... there's too much of a difference between you know body shapes like guys can get huge I yeah the, there's a finesse to baseball that i guess i could see that working Anyway, this is Top Ten Thursdays. I am your host, uh, Sean Lemmy. John Otney. Carla Westwood. Uh, are here this week to talk with me about um, about Ron Williams and the movies he made. Um, he, he died a little more than a week ago now when we recorded this. Um, and it's really sad. It came out of nowhere. Sounds like it was a suicide, which is really unfortunate. It's um, hopefully bringing a lot of attention to the, the the problem with mental health in this country and the way it's treated and the way the people who live with it have to handle it. Uh, but mostly, it's just had people uh, reminiscing about uh, the great career that this man had. I mean, he's one of the most charismatic people who ever lived. Maybe the most. Uh, someone who just always wanted to entertain everybody. Or at least that's how it seemed. Uh, so I guess we're just going to go through his uh, filmography. Uh, filtered down to just the ones we care about, I guess. That we've seen. Uh, and probably not actually rank anything at the end. Just, Just go through it. That sound reasonable, we, gents. We could rank the movies. I'm not opposed to At least what are like maybe top two, or you know, just a couple of ones that we put on top. I top don't know. two. Okay. It's a very exclusive <laughs> list. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> the higher ones. I mean, we'll see. We'll see how it goes by the end of the podcast. See how we feel. Um. So yeah, let's start with. One of his earliest movies. That would be The World According to Garp. Yeah, I watched this for the first time. I guess I finished it last night. It took me a couple nights to finish it. Because... 
<laughs> well, it is a movie. I don't know. It kind of lost me in the middle because it's it's based on a novel, and I'm gonna guess that it's a story that works better as a novel because as a movie, it doesn't have much of a narrative like arc or anything. It's just kind of a bunch of random stuff that happens in this guy Garp's life. And there's an interesting hook like in the beginning when uh, Garp sort of pronounces that he wants to be a writer and his mother, who's a nurse, played by Glenn Close, also decides, oh, I'm going to be a writer since that's what you do and that sounds fun. And she does and she becomes like a pretty successful writer in like a sort of feminist kind of way and it sets up a nice dynamic for sort of envy and jealousy and the way that that kind of permeates most writers lives but then it kind of just doesn't <laughs> do anything with that it just kind of turns into being about like Garp's family and <laughs> like did, random stuff happening. Did you say that Robin Williams' mother in this movie is Glenn Close? <laughs> yeah. What is she like? A year older than him? I think she's like four years older than him. I did have to look that up. I mean, it's also a weird movie in that Robin Williams plays his character uh, in high school <laughs> and at like forty years old. <laughs> And, Oddly, not the only time he would do that. Yeah, <laughs> and there's not, like, much makeup used either. It's just like, well, I mean, what was he? Like, probably, like, 30 when he did that. I mm -hmm. think that's, like, <laughs> just the borderline where you can get away with playing a high school student at 30. I'm sure it's been done in the past. I'm, I'm sure it's still done now. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some of those kids on Glee are, like, 30, 38, somewhere in yeah. that range. And, I mean, Robin Williams is he's pretty good in this. It's its kind of <laughs> remarkable that he did Popeye, which I'm guessing he's just, like, it's like the most <laughs> shtick-fueled thing, like, anyone's ever seen. <laughs> and then he does this, where he, he doesn't really have any of that. He's not doing any of the manic Robin Williams-isms that he's known for. He's, he's doing a very subtle kind of thing, which... I, I think that's kind of what was remarkable about him is that he could go so big and so small and still make it like compelling in every different sort of shade of of acting that he he knew how to do which I'm sure goes back to the fact that he also trained at Juilliard and he was a, a trained actor as well as a guy who cut his teeth at the comedy store doing stand-up but the thing about Garp is he's not that interesting of a character. There's not mm. that much going on there. And I don't know. This is only a like second The director movie, though, is right? George Roy Hill, who's one of those directors who I'm like, I don't know if he's actually a good director or if he just got movies that had really great scripts. Like, I love Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and Slapshot are really fun movies, but I don't know. I don't know if he was bringing much to the table, and this is a movie where that kind of shows, because it feels a little bland. Hmm. Does have John Lithgow playing a woman though? 
Nice. And that's that's fun to see. Pretty not early. the only time he wouldn't at least be in drag. <laughs> well, what what is another instance? I'm fairly certain he's in drag <laughs> in at least some part of Third Rock. Uh, so I mean, it's a sitcom, so yeah. I had to at some point. I I have an image in my head. Mm-hmm. Is it hilarious? Yeah, pretty sure. He might have also done something in Dexter. I remember he's doing some weird stuff. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'd like to believe that, but I just don't think it's true. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. Roll a card, Garb. It's okay. According to Colin. According okay. to Colin. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen Good Morning Vietnam. Although I might venture to guess I've seen it more recently than you guys. I saw it t- like two days ago. Okay, I've not seen it more recently <laughs> than that. <laughs> it's the second time I've seen it. Yeah. And I think it's notable for this, at least... I mean, I haven't seen a lot of Mork and Minnie, so I'm not really sure what his shtick was there. But as far as I know, this is where we really got to see Robin Williams do his fast-paced switching from kind of one character type to another. And like... And, like, so rapidly that you don't think, like, a human could ever think that fast. And they're all improvised, all the radio sequences in this movie. And mm-hmm. I, it's pretty impressive that someone can just operate on that kind of level. And this is kind of an interesting movie because at sometimes it's so jokey. Like, he's basically playing the genie from Aladdin. Like, this is where he developed that character almost. But then there's, like, some pretty dark spots in this movie about you know what was going on in Vietnam at the time and how it was affecting the people and people dying and everything. And he transitions to that really well. So uh, it's nice to see him like be able to balance both of those and it's not like too off-putting. I mean, I'll admit it's a little overwhelming sometimes like how long he can go off on shtick, but it is just like impressive to watch that, you know, someone has such a quick mind like that. Uh, I definitely like the the comedy aspects of Good Morning Vietnam more than the dramatic pieces. They're a little too heavy. Almost. I think, yeah, that's what I remember was when it got shit got real. It felt like a little overbearing, and I'm trying to remember because he plays a radio DJ in this movie, um, and that's where all the shtick comes from. But is is his character like? Is he like that off mic, or is that just something he does? I mean, yeah, he's as like a... that off mic, but it's not okay. quite <laughs> as intense. He's yeah, yeah. he's pretty much joking whenever he gets the chance. All right. I'm just trying to remember what the the narrative arc of this movie is. It's something like um he's is is he like a celebrity that they fly out to host the radio station or is he just he's just like that and so like, well, we should give this guy a radio show. I think he, well I I think before this he was um in Greece or Crete or somewhere and um I guess they just need someone to fill the position maybe so they just transfer him and they hear that he was popular over there so they need someone to fill the spot and they know that he's good but of course there's controversy because he says um certain things that they don't want him to say like inappropriate things about the government and uh, that kind of upsets his superiors, and it's kind of a constant struggle with what he can say and what he can't say. Yeah, isn't it like his his like commanding officer just like wants to play like country music, and he's all about rock and roll. Uh, it's like yeah, I mean that's a big part of it too. He wants to play like rock and roll, but 
they want to play like Lawrence Welk and Polka and all this cheesy stuff because they feel like the rock and roll is, you know, corrupts minds. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the 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 Polka thing you know, that that plays into um, one of my other you know favorite performances in the movies. Bruno Kirby plays another. Uh, he plays a lieutenant who says he like loves comedy, but he hates dirty stuff. And he's just has the worst sense of humor. He's not funny, and he's always trying to take over Robin Williams' position. And he's kind of like the right hand man to J.T. Walsh, who's basically in charge of everything at the station. And they're both very serious, but some of the best scenes are between Robin Williams and Bruno Kirby and how Bruno Kirby doesn't seem to get any jokes. And there's a great scene where Bruno Kirby goes on the air and he's doing like this horrible French accent and everyone's just like, oh my God, this is so bad. And it's it's really cringy, but that's, that's really funny too. Is he doing badly because he just doesn't know what he's doing or is it because he's trying to force himself to be like Robin Williams? It's because he doesn't know what he's doing. He has like this warped perception. He's like, I know what's funny. He's like, I like the Keystone Cops. He likes, he likes all this really cheesy stuff. Hmm. And it's funny to see Robin Williams play against these characters that have no idea what comedy is, and he's like the master of comedy. Like That's a great dynamic. I almost wish the movie utilized that more, like that was the whole narrative, but there's also a lot of side, side plots. Like There's this Vietnamese girl that he becomes interested in, so he starts teaching her English class, but he's just teaching everyone slang. And then her brother is involved with some shady people um, in Vietnam and, and he befriends him, but then there's you know some controversy there later on. Like there's, mm. there's a lot going on. I think, I think the stuff at the radio station is the, is the most interesting. And I think that's probably where the movie should have stuck, but uh, the other stuff isn't bad. It's just, there's a, there's a lot going on. It's an interesting movie. It's, it's got layers. I believe you. I think Oscar nomination for this one. He, he is uh, his first Oscar nomination. Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's it's pretty important in, in that respect too. Okay, let's talk about Dead Poet Society. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the floor is yours, John. Uh, I think Dead Poet Society is a movie that's really important to a lot of English majors out there. Um, it's it's certainly something I enjoyed. I watched it when I was in high school. Um, so did you was, did you watch it in class? No, I um, just did it for fun. I think me and John both saw it mm-hmm. that way in school. And it's um. I guess if you've somehow never heard anything about this movie, it's about this uh, this super uptight uh, private school where, for whatever reason, they bring in Ron Williams. Like, I guess we like without really knowing what he was like as a teacher um, to teach this class, and uh, he's all about teaching the the boys in his class to like start breaking the rules and have fun with life uh carpe diem is his main lesson i guess seize the day um and these kids all learn that they've been super uptight their whole lives and they start having fun kind of like school of rock i feel like (laughs) maybe you guys should just see that if if you need a reference um but then it goes super dark at the end. Yeah, I remember that. 
which I guess I won't spoil here, even though, again, I feel like pretty much everybody's seen this movie. Um, it's, it's, it's a movie that uh, you can appreciate for its character's appreciation of literature and, and just writing in general and art. Um, and it's rejection of authoritarianism, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It's got some some kids who grew up into actors you might recognize. Like who? I feel like that's true, but I don't remember. <laughs> who well, are they? Who are the kids? In the that? one that I remembered is Robert Sean Leonard. Okay. Uh, but Ethan Hawke also. Oh, uh, yeah. But he's like, doesn't do that much. Maybe he does. I can't remember. Uh, Josh Charles from like Sports Night and other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Kurtwood Smith as the dad. Kurtwood Smith as the bad dad. The bad dad. Hmm. As usual. Also, yeah, we're three for three with movies that go kind of dark at the end. <laughs> the world according to dark, world according to Garp. <laughs> they should have called it the world according to dark. Yeah, it has a couple very dark tonal shifts at the end that I'm not entirely sure work because it's a pretty lighthearted movie for the most part. And then at the end, you're just like, oh, wait, what? That happened? I don't know about that. The world according to Dark will be the next Batman movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it could happen if, like, Zack Snyder's directing it. Yeah, it'll be Man of Steel 3, the world according to Dark. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you You guys want to talk about Cadillac, man? Yeah, go for it. I never seen it. Oh. Cadillac Man, to me, will always be this tape that we have owned for a long time. <laughs> One of those yep, movies. I can remember your VHS copy <laughs> and just like, sitting there. Something that we were so interested in, we brought it with us on a few trips <laughs> and finally gave in and watched it one time. We and, family uh, vacations. We So we went into it thinking it was just going to be... We did not ever apparently get around to reading... Like the synopsis on the back of the of the of the box, mm-hmm. um, so we thought it was just going to be like Ron Williams playing, you know, some CD car salesman. Yeah, which is how the movie starts. It's like, check it out, this guy's like sleeping around a bunch, and he's like owes money to the mob. Uh, he's a pretty crappy dude. But then, Tim Robbins shows up, and uh, he's there. I think I think his intention is to just kill Robin Williams, but it turns into a hostage situation. Mm. And basically, the movie is about how Tim Robbins holding Robin Williams hostage is going to solve all the problems in Robin Williams' life. Like on its own, and it's uh, yeah, it's another movie. I guess this is the trend of of like it's totally one thing at the beginning, and it's becomes another thing 
halfway through. Um, it's sort of funny. Not particularly great. Uh, but it exists, and I own it. How's Robin Williams tonally? Is he mostly comedic, serious? Like, what's his character type in this this movie? Um, I don't remember him like doing any particularly sticky scenes or anything mm-hmm. like that. More, he was just playing this slimy character who, you know, can manipulate everybody with his motor mouth. So that's a bit of a departure for him. At that point, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> We've skipped over a lot of his career so far. <laughs> Not that much. Not that. Nothing super notable. I'm just glad we got to touch on one of your favorite VHS <laughs> movies. <laughs> the guy who uh, directed this is Roger Donaldson. That's kind of interesting. Remind me who that is. Yeah, the, like I know that name, but I can't remember what he's directing. The world's fastest Indian. Okay, the bank movie. job. He's got a November Man coming out. I'm an eclectic career. Yeah. Dante's Peak. You think anyone was ever like, "Hey, this movie stars Tim Robin Williams"? <laughs> that had to have been said at least once. Or was I just the first one? <laughs> No, I'm Some... sure someone's uncle said that. But okay. see, Ron Williams is always billed first. There's the, there's the rub. You think so? <laughs> but yeah, they could be slightly economical if they're willing to misspell one of their names. <laughs> uh-huh. Alright. What do we, what we got next? Oh, Awakenings. This is kind of interesting because uh, it's one of the early Robin Williams films that I can think of where he's not even remotely comedic. You know, it's pretty much serious yeah. the whole way through. Like, I mean, I, it, I can't even remember like exactly what he did. Like he's doing so little. I feel mm-hmm. like in this performance, because Robert De Niro definitely gets the flashier performance, even though it's also kind of a more insular performance for Robert De Niro but it's kind of the one you remember I mean Robin Williams is still good I mean his character type is he's timid and sensitive and he likes people but he's just shy around them and this kind of shows how you know he's this uh, very intelligent doctor and he gets stuck in this hospital taking care of these people who are basically catatonic and he kind of learns to open up to them and bond with these people that have been trapped for so long and in a way he's always been kind of emotionally closed off with people so he opens up as well yeah. uh, I mean I, I first came to this movie because the premise is so fascinating it's a true story Oliver Sacks uh, back in the 60s held these catatonic patients who in like the 20s uh, came under this thing called the sleeping sickness where you're kind of just like locked into your body but almost like a coma for like years and years and years and that's just endlessly fascinating and of course Robin Williams befriends Robert De Niro and he becomes his main test subject and it's like it's inspiring at times but then also like super super sad this movie's very really depressing it seems kind of like it's that sort of traditional manipulative arc of like the one person with the problem who has the ability to overcome it inspires everyone around him to become a better person is that, is that kind of the kind of movie we're talking about 
Yeah, that's that's pretty close. It's like Derek, the TV show that Ricky Gervais does. Uh, yes, yes, sort of. <laughs> I mean, he's. I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm glad Robin Williams isn't playing that kind of character than Derek. Yeah, this is a pretty yeah, good movie. Probably is. It. I'm just gonna keep coming up with bad but really current <laughs> references, <laughs> so you can hook the kids in to, yeah. to what we're jiving on. Uh, the only other thing I know about this movie, having not seen it, is that uh, isn't like Marge Simpson in this. <laughs> yeah, in a fairly prominent role. She's yeah, like the cartoon character. It's like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Julie Kavner. <laughs> <laughs> Julie Kavner is uh, one of the head nurses, and she at first is one of the only people who supports Robin Williams because he's he's developing. Well, he finds out about this drug that he thinks will kind of help wake up these people out of their comas, because. Here's the freaky part. Um, you know, recently uh, it came out that Robin Williams was suffering from uh, Parkinson's. Like he was going to maybe developing that. And the way he compares these uh, these coma patients is they have this kind of form of Parkinson's that's so intense that they're moving so much that they eventually just lock up. So it was really weird hearing talk so much talk about Parkinson's when, you know, like – Robin Williams, like that was something he was he experienced later on, like this weird, like I don't know, coincidence that's makes that makes the movie like more haunting now. You think that is a weird coincidence? Check there's me. there's lots of coincidence, but yeah, check this out. I am working through a backlog of Judge John Hodgman episodes. That other great podcast. There's this podcast is really good, and then also Judge John Hodgman. Those are the two. Uh, and the, the episode I was listening to today was an episode about people who like to watch bad movies. And they were talking about... And this is an episode from a year and a half ago. They were talking about wanting to see this movie called Tammy and the T-Rex. Starring Paul Walker and Denise Richards. About, like, modern day dinosaurs, I guess. It sounded really dumb. But then, I went on the internet when I got home from work. On the front page of Reddit trailer for Tammy and the T-Rex. Is that not a haunting coincidence? Uh, I don't know. I thought, I thought it was going to be bigger than that. That's, that's a fine coincidence. Scale of, ten, scale of 1 to 10, I give it a 6. If that. On a scale of haunting coincidences. <laughs> well, I've got a coincidence for you. Uh, one of the uh, disorder, I guess, hospital orderlies in this movie is Vin Diesel. <gasps> An uncredited role. Mm-hmm. Well, I bet it's not hard to spot him. Unless he had hair. I, I don't know. I don't know what, like, what 1990 Vin Diesel would look like. I mean, I only watched a couple of days ago, but unfortunately, I didn't read about him being in it till after I watched it. So, no, I didn't. It wasn't obvious because I, <laughs> I didn't. He didn't stand out, so he must have had hair. He must have not been quite as big. Probably he didn't say. <laughs> I have no there for the doctor. I haven't the slightest idea what you just said. <laughs> like, those were so far away from words to my ears that, uh, like this I know I... sick. <laughs> Too bad this is the day that he died. 
So he speaks in third person now. <laughs> I feel like Vin Diesel might as well just start speaking in third person. Yeah, he can probably throw his voice pretty far. Let's talk about The Fisher King, uh, which we just watched and I really enjoyed. Yeah. Uh, quite a... Yeah. Like, I've been trying to find more information about this movie and it is not readily it. available to me, which is frustrating. Um... Because I had this perception of the movie, I guess just based on the trailer, I thought it was going to be way more um, in the vein of, of what I expect a Gilliam movie to be, which is, like, it opens up with him shooting arrows at thugs on the street, like rubber arrows. And I was like, okay, this is going to be like, there's going to be some fantasy shit going on in this movie. <laughs> um, but after that early scene with, with Robin Williams' character, it... it it goes right back into drama town. So I, I guess I should, again, set up the plot so people can understand what we're talking about. Um, this movie stars uh, Jeff Bridges as a sort of... I don't know, somewhere between Howard Stern and Rush Limbaugh, I guess. I feel like he's a lot more Howard Stern than Rush Limbaugh. Okay, well... It, See, I don't really know what Howard Stern is like. I just assume it's like him being like, show me your boobs. Everyone on the radio, the boobs are so good. He does well, more he... than talking about boobs. Okay. I mean, he, sp he speaks his mind. And, yeah. You know, he's he's kind of crass sometimes, but he's not just showing boobs. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, he's he's... Jeff Bridges' character is, is going on this rant about uh, with this caller on the phone. Um, and it goes horribly wrong when the caller goes and massacres people at, at this bar uh, based on the obviously hyperbolic things that, that Jeff Bridges was saying. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and it fast forwards years later and, and uh, Jeff Bridges is really bottomed out and he's suicidal, um, and he gets beaten up by these thugs who think he's just some homeless guy, um, and he gets saved by, by Robin Williams, who is this totally insane uh, person who thinks he's a, he's a knight on a quest for the Holy Grail, which is, of course, a weird coincidence for Gilliam's career, Terry Gilliam. Um... <laughs> And, and it's the story of, of how um, Jeff Bridges learns learns what happened to Robin Williams' character and um, and that it turns out that he was at that bar when the massacre happened and he kind of snapped after that and his life fell apart. Um, and and they, they develop a friendship and, you know, they, he tries to make amends by helping Robin Williams' characters out. And... Uh, I don't know, it really, really worked for me. I guess, had you guys both seen that already? Bits and pieces. It was my first time just sitting down and watching it from beginning to end. And yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I, I love the contrast of the humor and the drama and how Terry Gilliam can present the most horrible, disgusting, gritty world, you know, with dirt and filth and insane people everywhere and still find beauty in that world. And magic, you know, in a way, not in like, not real magic, but you know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to see him do a movie that actually takes place in 
present time in like New York City because most of his movies are like either sci-fi or super fantastical in some sort of way and not set in America yeah so it's like yeah he, he found a way to sort of mix those like fantasy almost uh, sort of tendencies that he has and sort of apply it to a more like grounded real world type of story yeah I, I like this movie too a lot I love that there's flourishes of fantasy. There's kind of like a, those images of the the Red Knight and the and the great dance sequence at, yeah. at Penn Station, all that stuff. But then the you know the, most the load of the, the movie is is these characters interacting with each other, and I think that's what's so strong is the performances and. I think a lot of it has to do with the script, probably too, which oh, Gilliam yeah. didn't write. Some other guy, but he did a good job. <laughs> some other guy. Some guy. I don't know. His name is Richard Lagravenisse. <laughs> so and that I, is how I, it's I said his name and I butchered it. So I'm just being a total douche to that guy. My apologies. Has he written anything else? I'm sure he has. The only other movie I see on his filmography that I am a fan of is The Ref, which is a Ted Demi movie with uh, Dennis Leary holding. Kevin Spacey, uh, Hostage. That's a funny movie, but oh, yeah, there's a lot yeah. of other unusual movies on here. <laughs> Bridges of Madison County, uh, Water for Elephants, Beautiful Creatures, which he also uh, directed. Oh, Behind the Candelabra. Huh. An eclectic career. But I think Fisher King, I mean, just looking at that list, looks like his best. And it was one of his first. It was his second script. And he's yeah. from Brooklyn, so it must have, you know, Maybe it came from a personal place. I like to think so. And uh, he's real lucky he had Robin Williams for this movie. I mean, Jeff Bridges is, is, is great. Um, but I feel like um, Perry, the Robin Williams character, is written in such a way that basically just Robin Williams could actually make it work. Um, because he goes from super over the top, you know, talking about his quest from God to get the holy grail to like a pretty romantic speech uh, at the end of a date to crazy being terrified of this red knight and running down the street i mean that's like in the same scene mm-hmm. uh it's, it's hard to imagine anyone else like going through all those phases of of a character so quickly yeah, it's it's one thing that I felt like I've been doing while I've been rewatching these Robin Williams movies is trying to like decide, okay, was this written for Robin Williams or was it not? Because there are definitely ones that you can tell like no one else could have done this, and I don't know, maybe maybe it was specifically written for Robin Williams. I don't know. Also, weird coincidence that Groucho Marx song. Lydia the Tattooed Lady sung in, sung in The Fisher King also played in an episode of Judge John Hodge when I listened to like a couple days ago uh, so. not, You want another coincidence, Sean? <laughs> yeah, let's do okay. it uh, the, the lady that Robin Williams falls in love with in this movie Yeah? What's the actress's name? Uh, Anna Plummer? Yeah she has a small part in accord in the world according to Garp. What? It's all connected. Mm-hmm. 
Is she Garp's grandmother? (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of casting they do. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. She's Grandma Garp. Uh, You know, talking about the Fisher King also reminds me about how Terry Gilliam's always talked about how he's wanted to tell the story of Don Quixote, you know, about this hopeless kind of person looking to achieve this impossible dream. And I've always thought it's kind of unusual that he wanted to make that movie when I feel like the Fisher King's kind of that already, you know, like, and I don't know that he could ever make a movie as good as the Fisher King, at least in terms of that particular story. It's it's Uh, funny because I did read a quote uh, from him about how making this, making the Fisher King kind of like broke his, his filmmaking rules because he didn't want to do like a big studio picture like this ever in his career. Um, and he said the thing about it was he really liked how the movie turned out and it was super easy for him to make it. And he was like, I don't know if I ever want to making a movie to turn out this well and be so easy for me to do. Uh, yeah. Cause he himself is a guy who enjoys facing impossible challenges. He's very much like his characters. Mm-hmm. I, that's, I think that's what I admire about a lot of his films. But this is definitely one of my favorites. I don't know if it's my favorite Terry Gilliam one, but what I do like the amount of heart it has because I feel like a lot of his movies... I mean, he's got other movies that got heart, but they're also dark. And this one is one of the ones I feel like that has a happier ending than most. Uh, almost a little too happy, but I kind of like it. At the, at the end of the day, I kind of like it having a nice happy ending instead of kind of dark. Yeah. Take how the ending of Brazil makes you feel, and then flip it. <laughs> yeah, so it's nice to have. It's a nice change of pace for the kind of stuff he's he he normally does, but it's still very much in the vein of what he does. How about <laughs> Hook? Has anyone seen this since uh, since you were a kid? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sean's, it sounds like Sean saw it when he was kind of an older kid. Yeah, like 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 late 11, elementary or, school. 11 or 12. Yeah, like that maybe 6th grade. Um, what I remember about Hook is like, I felt like I had gone too far to have not had seen Hook by the time I saw it. Like, I, I, everyone else had already seen it and moved on. Um, I had slept over at a friend's house, so, you know, we'd been up all night. And then we had slept, then we had woken up and eaten breakfast, and then we put on Hook. And it was the longest sleepover of my life, because that movie goes on forever. And it's 140 minutes. After a sleepover, you're supposed to basically just get the fuck out there, but I was watching Hook for a long time. Also, one of the kids in it is in Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh. He's been part of my life Is there also some connection to John Hodgman you want to put out there right now? Does <laughs> John Hodgman have a cameo in the Last God, Airbender movie? Did did Asif Manvi sneak him in there? I think I'm out of Judge John Hodgman okay. connections, but okay. don't worry. I'm going to keep listening. I'm more of them are going to come up. Mm-hmm. In the days after we put this podcast out. So is Hook the worst Spielberg movie? I feel like that's kind of the rep it has. Ooh, that's a good question. Let me 
uh, let me go off for a minute and let me look on his his filmography because I've seen almost all of his films. I think I mean, it is. Okay. <laughs> oh, except for probably 1941. Is that yeah. also long? Uh, it felt long, but <laughs> no, it's under two hours. Uh, but you know, it it definitely has like uh similar problems to this one in that it's it tries to be really ambitious in its scope and 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 amount of people and it just kind of falls flat. Uh, I, I'm not even sure that it that it's like that deeply flawed. It's just there's it to me there's too much of it. I feel like it took forever for them to go back to Neverland. Once they got into Neverland, it was just problem after problem after problem. It, it was too much movie. Pacing's probably its biggest issue. Yeah. There's some other weird, you know, bits in here. Like, it's really not that funny, but... I mean, there's definitely some inspired moments. I mean, if... There's a time when I was like, Robin Williams is grown up Peter Pan. He's this hairy old dude. That Peter Pan can't go up to Robin Williams. But now, looking back, it's like, well, who's better to be you know, the ultimate kid in the form of an adult, you know, because Robin Williams is like a big kid. So it kind of, it makes a lot of sense. It's pretty good, even though I feel like Peter Pan was probably imagined to be about half the age of Robin Williams. Mm -hmm. But whatever. So that's kind of an inspired choice. And this movie looks, it looks really good. It was filmed on all these uh, really awesome sets that are, just kind of uh, brimming with detail so so that that's good and i guess people really like the lost boys because i feel like one reason we had to at least just touch on hook is for some reason it seems fairly popular with our generation and uh maybe the generation before us a little bit particularly the character of rufio for some reason who's the leader of the lost boys who's the ultimate douchebag but for some reason, that character has really lived on. I don't know if it's just because of his name. He's or... a cult icon at this point. <laughs> that, that's... I mean, he's up there with like Powerline or whatever from from Goof Troop movie. <laughs> 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 one of those weird characters that people remember. Really, that's like, the why? one you go with from Powerline? I thought it would be just... more like Pauly Shore's character, whatever his name was. Maybe. Yeah, if you can't come up with his name, it doesn't count. Yeah, I guess. Powerline. It's memorable. He's got the moves. And because of that, I feel like a lot of people kind of hold this movie close to their heart because of some of these over-the-top characters. There's also that fat kid, Thudbutt. <laughs> and I think most... <laughs> and I, I know that if there's one thing I remember about Hook, it's that scene where he grabs his legs and becomes a ball and then rolls like in, uh, this enormous ball into a bunch of pirates. And it's the most ridiculous looking thing you've ever seen. Yeah, oh yeah. I clearly remember that. You know, if uh, I suggest looking for the gif on the, on the internet. It's great. <laughs> and that's funny. I kind of like that. There's those, these little quirky moments like that. But yeah, I think as a whole, this movie is super long. And it doesn't need to be like it's so much story and this weird angle where it's like how Captain Hook's trying to become friends with Peter Pan's children, <laughs> and they like the pirates kind of become their friends and they're all playing baseball together. <laughs> of course, yeah. it's got Bob Hoskins as Shmi, and Perfect. David Crosby is a pirate, and uh, Jimmy Buffett is a pirate. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, I, those, that's kind of funny that they did that. But you I know, don't... another thing that I just remembered is that Glenn Close is in this as a male pirate. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember because I like that Albert Knobs. People were like, "Oh, did you know this about Glenn Close?" Did yeah. you remember that? Um, you, I mean, you, I've, I've forgotten, but yeah, I remember hearing that at some point. That's weird. I mean, I think this movie, what it comes down to, it's a bunch of like little fun, quirky ideas, but that's not enough to keep the whole movie afloat. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I guess it's the, that those little quirky moments have kind of kept it alive, though. That and Peter Pan's a fairly popular character. Kind of weird, weird movie. story. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's adult Peter Pan. Do you think it would have been better had Spielberg made a movie that was just a retelling of Peter Pan? See, I'm trying to remember like what what Peter Pan's all about, and all I can really think about is for whatever reason there's a ton of Native Americans in it, <laughs> and like it's probably kind of racist about that part now. <laughs> I mean, it's about finding the kid within you and embracing that but if you're just talking about the basic story yeah maybe there's some stuff with like native american-esque characters i don't remember chief wahoo makes an appearance <laughs> oh, God. i think that's enough for hook though oh sure yeah, well it wouldn't be characteristic of hook if it ended around time <laughs> <laughs> Aladdin is uh, probably one of uh, Ron Williams' most famous roles. He plays the genie Pretty named... Genie? It's just, it's just it's genie. Just genie. <laughs> I wasn't sure if there was like a secret name that no one knows about. <laughs> Hodgman. <laughs> genie Hodgman. Yeah, this is probably my introduction to Robin Williams. Me too. I don't know if I knew that that was the guy voicing him, but it's like, I don't know. Once you feel that energy coming off that genie, you know it's coming from someone very with a very specific kind of demeanor and is doing something just totally crazy and off the wall and unlike anyone else. And, uh,. Yeah, I, I guess I was all about Robin Williams probably from then on. He was one of the first, like, probably like just like the first celebrities I knew. It's like, oh, that guy. I like that guy. But the genie. You, John, you said you were watching some clips from Aladdin earlier. Well, <laughs> or the were, other ones. Or were you watching them yeah. from the sequels? <laughs> I was watching the sequels, but I'm, I'm, I think I'm still familiar with the original. I think I watched a scene or two from the first one. Like when he first shows up and he's doing like uh, references that were, I'm sure, completely over my head. He's doing like a Jack Nicholson and he's doing like Ed Sullivan, which I'm sure all kids... Yeah. But, you know, it was, it was for adults. It was the so, beginning of that era, I guess. Have you ever heard the theories about Aladdin that tie into that? <laughs> theories? <laughs> why, no. why the genie makes pop culture references? There, yeah, that are about... there is a theory about Aladdin that it is not set in the past. It is actually in a dystopia future. <laughs> um, that 
I, I think that somehow the genie played a part in that, whatever the apocalypse was. And that's why he is aware of culture that would, to the other characters would be ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, the alternative, I guess, would be that the genie is some sort of... Uh, like he exists within all time zones. Yeah, he, like he experiences uh, all of time in a non-linear sense. He is experiencing all of time at the same time, basically. Um, and so he doesn't really know what references are appropriate for the time period he's in. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't... Because, I, like, why would you go to the trouble of changing yourself into Jack Nicholson if no one's going to know what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. So, he's he's he knows what's up. Wow, he's at I least didn't. omnipotent. <laughs> Apparently, uh, but yeah, I mean. I think what I can appreciate about this now, aside from the fact that it's apparently the most complex movie ever made, <laughs> is his ability. Like, this is basically improv voice acting, and maybe one of the first occurrences of it, at least on uh, in a prominent way. Because mm. I mean, if you've ever heard anything about behind the scenes of Aladdin, he recorded 16 hours <laughs> of uh, of audio, like 16 hours. Like he had that many ideas and that many characters. And in, in watching this movie, you just kind of see him go off and. It, I, I I I don't know that they had dialogue for him. It's kind of just like he created the character. They had like a character kind of loosely in mind, but he really brought it to life with all these different impressions and his talents for all these different characters. And it's great to see that, to hear, to hear those uh, impersonations, but then also see them animated, mm-hmm. uh, all, these, all these different character types. And that's pretty groundbreaking and still kind of is. There's still nothing quite like that. Uh, in any animated movie I've ever seen. I mean, you definitely gotta, like, kind of gotta think that, yeah, Robin Williams was a guy who was definitely destined to play a cartoon character. I mean, just the fact that his first big screen role was Popeye. And then this, uh, yeah, but I mean, (laughs) this is definitely a role that kind of distills what Robin Williams was pretty, pretty naturally, I guess. So, I mean, this was definitely one of my favorite Disney movies as a kid. Um, I, I love the the fun setting uh, without understanding the possible uh, racist overtones to it. <laughs> um, I, I love the, the story of the you know the idea of magic and the power of being able to wish for anything, but like you only got those three wishes. So how do you know exactly what the the right wishes are? Which, by the way, Aladdin not the best wisher. His are kind of no. weak. But whatever, he's a good guy. <laughs> he's doing his best. Um, you know, it ends with one of the better fight scenes in in the Disney canon. Is that what you go to Disney movies for? Is the fight scenes? Um, I might have fast forwarded through Beauty and the Beast a few times just to, get, just <laughs> just to watch Gaston just. <laughs> he fucking stabs him, man. Yeah, that was Shit's intense. real. <laughs> Somewhere you have a tape that's just full of like Disney rumbles, <laughs> like the best Disney fights. Disney rumbles volume one. Hell yeah! <laughs> um, this is also my first exposure to Gilbert Gottfried in his unforgettable role as Iago the parrot. Talk about a guy destined to play a parrot at some point. 
And I couldn't tell you who any of the other members of the cast are. You know, I wonder... I may have heard this somewhere, but I, I don't remember. If this was one of the first movies that kind of made it acceptable, or at least like, hey, stars can be in animated movies. I mean, there's movies in the past that had prominent voice actors, but Robin Williams was a, definitely a star, and he's taking a supporting role in an animated movie. I wonder if he kind of... You know, people saw his success, and that kind of made that a trend, you know. Because from there on out, you got to see big-name actors in animated movies more often. Yeah, I never thought about it. It makes sense. Because, I mean, even the really good Disney movies from that period, like like Beauty and the Beast or The Little Mermaid or whatever, like, they just all star nobodies, basically. Maybe. I, mean, I, don't, know if he, I don't know if he's a first, because, you know, The Rescuers had Bob Newhart, superstar Bob Newhart. <laughs> But it's it's I feel like I feel like I may have read that somewhere that you know people saw Robin Williams and they're like wow that's impressive look at all the stuff he can do in this character. Kinda I think that might had that might have been it too that they saw that you know you you could bring your own thing even just to a voice actor role. You weren't just doing whatever the animators wanted you to do with it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean these days it sounds like, I mean, what they usually do with animated movies, they they do a lot of the voice recording before a lot of the animation because they want to track the actor's movements. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if Robin Williams was really an important part of that. So, wow. He's a trailblazer in so many different ways. Yeah. Interesting to think about. Just like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> Because the plot is kind of fucked up when you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was funny. We all sat down together to watch this recently. And the decisions that this character makes make so little sense. And the scenarios he puts himself into are so ridiculous and so avoidable. <laughs> but that all aside, I love this movie so much. It's so funny. It's over the top. But I, I mean... I wonder if it, Ron Williams didn't star in this. If it starred someone else, it could have been like a huge disaster. Like it could have been like a really bad movie. Now this I is, don't know. This is one of those movies where I feel like it had to have been written with Robin Williams in mind. I can't imagine anyone else. I mean, can you imagine that. if Michael Keaton had been Mrs. Doubtfire? It would have been a joke. Anyone else, it would have been a joke. <laughs> well, his voice is way too gruff to pull off the. Yeah, I think with Michael woman. Keaton. His Mrs. Doubtfire would have been a younger woman. I don't think he would have gone old. I think it would, have, it would have been funnier to see him playing a woman the same age as him, but with his voice and his physique. I mean, early 90s, he's in pretty good shape. Okay, well, maybe he's not the best. Enough about Michael Keaton's physique. Yeah. I don't know. The weird thing is, like, I pretty much buy Robert Williams as... This is Doubtfire. Like, a lot of those kinds of movies, you kind of have to suspend disbelief. Like, Tootsie. I don't know if I entirely buy that that's a woman. Same with, like, Some Like It Hot. But even though this is not as good as either of those movies, makeup's pretty good. Harvey Fierstein and his lover did a good job. Absolutely. Yeah, I I guess that brings to the... Brings me to like the big conceptual problem with this movie which is that like plan a for our our main character is to go do mrs doubtfire like he very passively asks his wife if she'll let him take care of the kids and she's like hell no 
And then immediately he's like, all right, I'm going to miss this doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> and on one hand, it's such an illogical leap for a character to make. They didn't do anything to justify this transition. They barely even established the idea that his brother is a makeup artist who could help him do this. But on the other hand, you know that this is Mrs. Doubtfire going into it. Do they really want to waste your time with a bunch of setup <laughs> instead of just cutting to the chase and getting him in drag? Let him dance to Aerosmith. Yeah, I mean, that happens almost immediately. That's what the people paid money for, after all. And it's, similarly, they don't let you see uh, Rob Williams and Sally Field's marriage fall apart. Or really let you appreciate those characters, except for the fact that Rob Williams is a great father, and then immediately Seifield like does not trust him to be around their children for whatever reason. Uh, it it all like it's clearly just in service of the plot instead of naturally coming out of who these characters are and what they're doing. But maybe that's okay because I'm just trying to see the jokes. I think so. Uh, I guess. <laughs> I will give the movie credit for the judge character who I believe said what is like very logical every step of the way. <laughs> like in his first court appearance, he's like, well, you don't want him to take care of your kids, Sally Field. And, you know, he doesn't really have a job or a place right now. So I guess I see what you're saying. So we'll 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 do we'll give him a ninety day trial to prove that he can take care of himself and then he can take care of the kids, and then later on at the end of the movie he's been exposed he did the Mrs. Doubtfire thing, and he's like you did crazy shit and I think you're crazy so I'll give you a year to prove you're not crazy and maybe we'll let you see your kids again, but for right now I'm gonna trust him with how I feel. And it's like yeah yeah that makes sense, the the like this is a guy who did some pretty terrible things to Pierce Brosnan. Just because he's dating Sally Field. Like, Pierce Brosnan comes off as the most wonderful man in the world in this movie. <laughs> but he's treated like the villain. He almost kills him. Yeah. By putting that guy he in almost pepper kills him. Was. He almost kills him. Then Ron Williams has his disguise removed. Everything is revealed. And Pierce Brosnan is the first one who's like, it's okay. I'm cool with it. Mm -hmm. He should hate him the most. <laughs> for how horribly both Mrs. Doubtfire and Ron Williams' real self treated him. But he's still, he's the first one, but it's okay. And then you never see him again for the rest of the movie, so. I guess she just dumps him. Maybe he died of complications. <laughs> the after effects. Oh, no. <laughs> but yeah, the joy of this movie is this over-the-top character that um, we get to watch. Um, I guess there's an early scene where the, the court-appointed lady comes to uh, check out Rob Williams' living situation, and he is just returning from his first day as Mrs. Doubtfire, uh, so he has to try to make himself look good while simultaneously switching between himself and the Mrs. Doubtfire character, which is a pretty good scene. <laughs> Let's just say it's a pretty good scene. Like, you... Maybe it's the best scene in cinema. I don't know. I don't want to go that far. It's a pretty good scene. I agree. Uh, sure. 
Why not? Uh, so we also watched Jumanji the other day. Whoops. And <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, I'd agree with that assessment. Because, I don't know. I guess because I had never seen Jumanji before, which was a bit of a bombshell revelation <laughs> to my, uh, friends here. Uh, and maybe that's why I don't have as much, I don't know affection for it as a Mrs. Doubtfire which is also I don't know Mrs. Doubtfire is a weird one because it's not that good of a movie but it's like it's fun you can enjoy it but Jumanji is just a, it's just a pretty bad movie <laughs> mainly because the plot is like so like not engaging to its characters like they literally are just playing a board game which makes I guess jungle stuff just kind of happen and then they just they just kind of deal with it like they don't really have any challenge to overcome they're just like oh we just roll the dice again and just like deal with more monkeys yeah I think I mean it it starts with just the fact that this is based on a a little you know a a really short story it's like a it's a kids book that's animated so you just or not animated but you know illustrated you just you're just there to look at the pictures of animals in a house you're like yeah let's make a movie out of that animals in a house (laughs) um and the only way to like justify that with with this game this is a game where you roll the dice and no matter where you let and there's like not marked spaces or anything you just you move forward and then something bad happens that's the whole game Mm -hmm. um and of course they could defeat it if they all just buckled down and like really pass the dice between each other really fast uh, because as soon as you reach the ending everything that happened in the game is undone but the problem is every time they roll the dice everyone's like okay well let's see what happens and they look around and they wait and they deal with whatever the thing is and it goes on for like 10 minutes for each turn there's just nothing about the there's no strategy to the game it's like yeah the game is the worst part of the movie it's it's like kind of fun to watch them deal with this shit but there's you're not like oh they're playing the game badly or they're like it's not like they're improving they're not learning anything there's no challenge there's no character development it's just like a very poorly constructed story device basically it's a game of chance where you lose no matter what you do yeah it was kind of fun to see how uh badly the cg has aged though (laughs) Mm -hmm. the monkeys play a very crucial role in this movie and none of them are real monkeys they are all computer generated and look so good i think my favorite part was the the elephants which do not run they just walk very fast and it looks (laughs) not natural at all it looks like a like yeah someone just made a computer generated image of a elephant walking and then just sped it up really mm-hmm. fast and they try to hide it by like always putting them in the stampede <laughs> there's a bunch of other animals running around them i don't know why they could do the running animation for the other animals but not the elephants i, I agree that the cgi is hilarious but i almost <laughs> found the animatronics in this movie more funny like 
I think the biggest laugh I had in this whole movie was the introduction of the lion, which is an animatronic. But because it, it, it comes out of some shadows, but it kind of just looks like there's a guy behind it, like pushing it out. Like it's not actually walking; it's just kind of rolling towards the camera. Well, because like his face doesn't move at all; it's just like completely stiff. I think the comment I made was, "Did they just use a taxidermy lion for this scene?" Uh, that scene's hilarious, and there's a great scene later with some spiders. What's great about them? <laughs> their legs don't move individually. They all kind of move at once, so it kind of shakes towards people in a way that no spider has ever moved. It looked like fucking lawn decorations you get for Halloween, but in a movie. Yep, exactly. Because it's it's in this brightly lit, wide open room. They they didn't have any shadows to work with. So you just have these fucking rubber-ass-looking spiders wobbling towards them. It's terrible. It's, yeah, one of those unprofessional-looking <laughs> scenes I think I've ever Thank seen. you for bringing that up, John. I'd forgotten them, yeah, those fucking so spiders. <laughs> what a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure why I've remembered this movie like I have. I think, I think part of the reason is, as a kid, like, the... Like conceptually, like it is interesting the idea of a magic board game. Like that is a cool idea, a board game that can affect the world around you. But as we talked about, like there's no real, there's no strategy to it. So that's one of the downfalls. And then early on, I don't know if you guys had a problem with this, but like so the first time they roll it, spoiler, I'm gonna I'm gonna give away some of the rolls. First time they they roll the dice, there's uh, some giant mosquitoes or something. There's like three of them. Okay, that's bad. They roll it again. There's some monkeys. They're like, we gotta keep playing, and at that point, I'm like, there's just some, there's some, there's you know, there's some mosquitoes and there's some monkeys. I think we're good. You don't need to keep playing. It's only gonna get worse. <laughs> like, I don't know. Personally, I didn't feel like they had enough of a reason to keep playing the game. Like, they just kept making things worse. Like, are you gonna risk killing yourself to get rid of a couple things? I don't know. Did you guys have a problem with that? I was okay with it because they established real early on that once you um, reach the end, everything is undone. And, you know, Lilith was coming home, so they they didn't want to get yelled at by her. Yeah. Lilith from Cheers. Yeah. Okay, from Cheers. Whatever. I guess she's well, in more Cheers than you Cheers. You can't just say Lilith and expect people to know what that means. The actress Baby New Ruth. Nancy knows. Is in this. Nancy Hopefully knows. he's listening. Um, I doubt it. So they established that, and you're right, you're right, like, when they're still in the house, it doesn't make sense, but then they... Then they summon the lion, so it's like, okay, now you got to get rid of that. That's trapped in your house. And then they also, they go out pretty early on, and they see that the mosquitoes are fucking killing people, and the monkeys are, have, like, destroyed the whole town. So at that point, you're like, okay, they need to undo what they did. I suppose. I feel like you can tell that this movie sucks from just that first scene, where it's, like, in 1869, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's, like, these kids that bury it. And one of them's like, what do we do if someone, I can't remember the lines. Like, what do we do if someone finds this? He's like, then God have mercy on their soul. <laughs> and it's a little kid delivering that line. It's like, even from an adult, that line would be silly. But like delivered from a kid, it's just. The... I mean, the movie's for kids, so maybe they want to like, you know include kids as much as possible but yeah i, I agree that that doesn't make any sense and of course they never established that you can't just destroy the game they because they, uh, the movie ends with the, some other kids finding the, the game but then they never i think 
Ron Williams had a lot of reasons to want to destroy that game, but mm-hmm. he didn't even try. <laughs> I don't know. He, he saved know, it a few times. Yeah. You know, I also find this movie kind of unusual in that it seems like it's directed towards kids, but Robin Williams, you know, he comes back from the jungle. It seems like an angle, if they wanted him in the movie for kids, that he'd come back and he'd be super wacky. And he's a little wacky, but most of the time he's pretty serious. Like, <laughs> he's lived through some horror, and he's, he talks about it, and it talks about, you know, living in the jungle and being hunted. And it was just weird that they put Robin Williams in a movie that sounds pretty zany, and he's, in a way, one of the more serious characters. Like, there's not a lot of humor, <laughs> at least good humor, in this movie. It's a little bit with uh, David Allen. <laughs> I, I suppose... <laughs> He's kind of in the background just, most of the time, though. He's not. I was just thinking about that scene where it's 1969 and he's developed a shoe that looks like a basketball shoe from the 90s. Just on his own. And, yeah. That's a weird part. But to your point, John, it's definitely a, like, a case where they cast Rob Williams for the two types he's most known for. The, like, the man-child and also the, the wise father. And he mm-hmm. just kind of switches on a dime between one and the other. Kind of just between scenes. I mean, there's... Because I remember af- after he's been out of the game for a little bit, he's still all hairy. You know, he- he's talking about how, how disturbing and-, and terrible the jungle was. And then there's that scene where they're outside and there's some monkeys getting in the police car. And Ron Williams starts acting like a monkey. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, would he really do that? Like... It's a weird transition to make right there. And they, but I guess they need to try to put in some laughs somewhere. <laughs> they just, you know, they just don't work. You know, one thing watching it again that I kind of liked is I kind of liked, I actually kind of liked the 1969 time period. And then mm-hmm. at the end when young Robin Williams kind of reconnects with his father, like I thought that was kind of a nice moment. But, you know, we don't get a lot of that time period. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's, I just like uh, what's his face, the Jonathan. What's his name? Hyde. The father, Hyde. Yeah, and he's also he also plays the hunter. I I like him, so it's interesting to see him in playing two characters and two very different lost screen time. Yeah, I just for some reason I have I I never really like scenes in movies where like. For one character, it's been a long time, and for the other character, it hasn't been a lot of time. And he's just like, I love you so much. And the guy's like, what are you, I've just been gone for five minutes. Like, anytime there's a scene like that in a movie, it just kind of just kind of makes me uncomfortable. I don't know. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I mean, in Jumanji, in Jumanji, what's disturbing about it is him and the and the Bonnie Hunt character, Rob Williams and Bonnie Hunt character, are both going to go through puberty and adulthood again and that's there's something that's kind of creepy about that mm-hmm. that they have to relive that portion of their life mm-hmm. doesn't everybody just kind of want to do over I don't know maybe well yeah, yeah I mean it's, it's going to be fine for Ron Williams because he missed out on the childhood basically I suppose uh, but for her it's going to be rough I guess you could say she missed out too because she's so psychologically damaged by what happens <laughs> that's true Let's move on to something less uh, psychologically damaging. <laughs> uh, I believe next we're going to be talking about uh, the Birdcage, which I watched a couple nights ago. Is it and still funny? It is still funny. It's very funny. It's kind of interesting because the there's a, it's a movie with a very like over the top character, 
but it's not Robin Williams. <laughs> oh, like no. he's playing he's playing the serious character. Nathan Lane is playing the over top the top character. So it's kind of nice seeing Robin Williams step aside, taking a more subdued role, but still still being entertaining and you know, and they still have a great dynamic. It just it's nice to see that you know, he didn't force himself into the Nathan Lane role or try to steal his thunder. You know, he does a great job just kind of uh, you know, supporting him. He's a straight man. Yeah, he can do that too. Not, oh, okay. That's that's yeah, that's clever. That's very I, clever. I didn't even mean to do that. That was unintentional <laughs> cleverness. Uh, so to explain, Colin's a genius here. If you haven't seen the Bird Cage, <laughs> it's the story of uh, a young man has fallen in love uh, with a young lady, and um, things are going very well in their relationship. So it's time for her parents to meet his parents and um in this case that would be robin williams who is a gay man who runs a uh i guess what would he be called like a drag club yeah and it's like a nightclub but with performances yeah featuring men dressed as women Mm -hmm. um and he is uh in a relationship with nathan lane who is like the star drag queen in in their in their club uh, and like the most over the top person you can imagine uh, super high strung and sensitive uh, and, and really funny um, and since uh, her parents are Gene Hackman and Diane West uh, Weast. Weast sorry I, I knew that but I still did it wrong <laughs> um, they decide um, to pretend to be a straight couple for their visit. I, I, don't, I don't know what the long-term plan was there, but basically it becomes this um, long... Is it just over one night or two? Uh, well, the, the, the meeting, the parents, is just uh, that one night. I, I guess the movie spans about only about two or three days. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fairly brief. Gene Hackman rushes down there uh, pretty quickly because, I mean, even though he doesn't want his daughter to get married because she's so young, he's in the middle of a scandal because he's just endorsed a politician who died while with a prostitute. <laughs> so he's trying to avoid controversy. He's like, oh, a wedding, that'll be a nice distraction. Mm. And, uh, you know, he doesn't know. He's just kind of putting himself in a deeper and deeper hole by putting himself in, like, this uh, gay community uh, with these very flamboyant people. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I don't know if I want to spoil anything, but it builds to a great moment where they're like, well, how are we going to get out of this mess? And if you guys remember the end, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a great uh, finale to all this. Like That's what I love about this movie. It just keeps building and building to these over-the-top, just crazy moments that are very funny. But uh, the majority of the movie has Juan Williams and Gene Hackman trying to accept Nathan Lane as a woman and treat that like it's it ain't no thing which is awesome I mean it's great how easily Gene Hackman is fooled <laughs> like he, he loves he loves her he thinks that yeah, Nathan Lane as this woman is such, is such a great person you know so you're like oh god he's gonna find out at some point it just you know you enjoy the ride Oh yeah, Callista Flockhart is the daughter. 
Uh-huh. Really? Yeah, I haven't seen this since that one time we watched it together. So I'm a little hazy on it. I have seen the French movie that it's based on. La Caja Faux. <laughs> want to say his name of it <laughs> was that a stage play before it was a movie it could have been it just I, I just i wonder i mean even though it's very easy to look up uh watching the birdcage it very much feels like a play just the way it's set up minimal locations and mm-hmm. these long scenes between characters yeah. to be honest i think i like this one better than the french one Ooh. suck it yeah french i love it I'm glad to see Rob Williams sharing the stage because if you've ever seen him live with other actors, like let's say whose line is it anyway, you know he'll 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 tend to steal people's thunder and try to just blurt in and steal the show. So it's nice to see that when he was on camera, he could stick to his part, you know the part he was given, and still do a great job no matter what kind of character he was playing. Check it out. <laughs> yeah, what are you waiting for? Except that I, you know, it's another '90s movie. Where I'm like, hopefully this is still not offensive. I, 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 I feel pretty good that it wouldn't be. I don't think so. I mean, this is Mike Nichols. He knows what's up. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> Nobody was offended by the Graduate. How about what dreams may come? Oh, wait, no. Goodwill Hunting first. Then what dreams may come. A little teaser for what dreams may come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Goodwill Hunting is a movie about a genius. Played by Mad Damon. <laughs> who uh, works as a janitor, I think, in... Like MIT, Harvard, one of those fancy Boston universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spends his nights uh, like solving impossible math problems on chalkboards. And then he gets caught. And instead of just being fired, fucking shit up, um, he's taken in by. Um, Stone Skarsgård, right? That's the guy, the professor? Yeah. He's like, check this out. I'm gonna hook you up with smart stuff. <coughs> oh, no, he gets arrested. He gets arrested. And he's like, I, I'm i all about how smart you are, and I got you out, but you gotta, gotta go to therapy. And that's where Robin Williams comes in, because he's Stone Skarsgård's old buddy, who's like, uh, <laughs> best therapist in the world. And it's gonna help. Good help Oh, Will Hunting get in touch with himself, but all all Will wants to do is hang out with his blue collar friends like Ben Affleck and Casey Affleck, who are not related in this movie. Nope. Uh, it's a delightfully written film, uh, where they they kind of go out of the way to give every character a great scene. Uh, I would say for for Will, it's probably pretty early on that bar scene where he just tears apart that douchey, like, frat boy from Harvard. About, like, you think you're smart? You just fucking quote shit from a book. I could get the same education 
for free from a library. Which is awesome. Uh, ben Affleck gets a good scene at the end of the movie where he's like, what the fuck are you doing? You can do anything you want and you're doing this stupid job with us working at construction. You're wicked smart. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, Ron Williams gets a few good monologues where he talks about his life and then also tells Matt Damon how to live his own life. Um, Stellan Skarsgård gets a good scene in there where he's like, I wish I could do what you could do, but I can't, and it makes me sad. So like a Salieri type deal, I guess. What about Mini Driver? Does she get a good Mini scene? Driver is just there to be beautiful and charming. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like they break up, and that's probably pretty good. It's, it's probably a good scene. Yeah. Get, gets kind of emotional. I think that's how it goes, like... He he won't commit to her, and she's like, "What's the deal? I I love you, bro." Then then she like leaves, and then at the end of the movie, he's like, "I gotta go get her back." Mm-hmm. Instead of working at the NSA, which is really powerful now, because like, fuck the NSA, right? Yeah, I guess it's taking on a new meaning. Yeah, I don't know what to say about this one. <laughs> it's the one uh, Ron Williams won an Oscar for. He's, he's really good. So, fuck. <laughs> I still... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. My computer did some weird thing. I thought I stopped recording. But I didn't. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, Ron Williams is the good... Robin Williams in this movie. That's what they should have called it. <laughs> Good okay. Robin Williams. Yeah, well, I mean, it's. I guess it's. I guess it's sort of playing up his uh, his fatherly charms from some mm-hmm. of his other roles, but it's a different type of character. It's it's a, it's someone who um he he gives Will a, a friend more than anything else. Uh, someone who understands what he's been through. Someone who gets his you know like abusive relationship with his father and, and stuff like that and can understand and he's got a great beard which you know didn't get enough of Romulan's beard I was super excited a couple of years ago when he did like a Nintendo commercial and he had fucking Gandalf beard <laughs> I think that was for a play okay you don't have to justify it to me. I was happy to see it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it makes you wonder why Matt Damon and Ben Affleck haven't written more movies together. This is a well-written film. I mean, they want an Oscar. Maybe they feel like they could never do better. Done. I mean, there was that thing where people are like, "How much did they write of it?" I feel like they've so said I, I'm, that I'm William aware Goldman that that's a contract. So what? Could you explain that? I oh, I know that like William Goldman was supposedly brought in to write a bunch of it, and it's weird because like I've read the one of William Goldman's books, the one after Adventures in Screen Trade, where he talks about it, and he. <laughs> He writes this very cryptic little message where he says, like, yeah, people say that I wrote some of this movie, and you know what? I wrote every word of it. And it's like, I guess he's being sarcastic, but 
is he also trying to say that he did write a lot of it? <laughs> like, I don't know how to take that. So I guess we'll never really know. Well, I like it. I've seen it a couple yeah. times. I'll, I'll still say it's a good, it's a well-written movie, <laughs> whoever did write it. But enough about this. I've I've been just waiting. I'm so excited. What dreams may come. So moving on from good Robin Williams to bad Robin Williams. <laughs> oh, n- I was I was really excited to see this movie. I have been for a long time, for multiple reasons. I think the first reason was the fact that it it's based on a book by Richard Matheson, great science fiction writer, one of the best of all time, and. Uh, and then it's also it's it's it seems more relevant than ever because it's a movie where Rob Williams is a plays a man who is dead and in the afterlife, and yeah. And this movie, uh, as it begins, it it's just sad incident after sad incident. Like he's just a character surrounded by death, and it's almost a little like heavy-handed. Like just, it's oh, it's ridiculous. Like everyone he knows is is dying or hurting. And it moves at a it's like a slug's pace, really slow. I, I think, and I, most people, I, I think, are, uh, when they go into this movie, are looking forward to the dream world. And it takes a, a while to really get in there and kind of explore that world. And it's really cool looking. There's these uh, really fantastic looking backdrops, and there's people floating around in this weird kind of heaven where everyone starts out in their own little. Uh, like a place, uh, the safe place, their own version of heaven, like when they first die. And for Rob Williams, it's this weird painting-like world because his wife was a painter, and that's really fantastic. And he's guided by Cuba Gooding Jr., who used to be a patient of his, or at least a friend, because Robin Williams' character is a doctor. But eventually, he leaves this place, and he goes to explore the rest of, I guess, heaven. Uh, and, and he's later informed that his wife is now dead. He... I don't know how much I want to say, but his kids are dead, too. Um, Jesus Christ. Before he dies in a car accident. And his kids also died in a car accident. But his wife, he finds out that his wife has committed suicide. So she's not in heaven. She gets sent to hell. I mean, Rob Williams, so it's like hell, but they're like saying it's kind of like hell. It's kind of not. There's no like real labels. Who's, but it's who is they? They? Yeah. I don't like the angels. I don't. I don't really know what they are. Cuba Gooding Jr. I mean, disembodied. I mean, Cuba Gooding Jr. tells him a lot of this. He's like, even though he used to be a person in the real world, now he's like a guide for people that have died, which seems weird because it's. Yeah. So of course he had to take on Robin Williams. Like I actually knew that guy. What a weird coincidence. So, then the movie kind of becomes Robin Williams and Cuba Gooding Jr. uh, leaving heaven and going to hell to try and go find his wife. And try to bring her from that, even though they're not sure if that's something they're allowed to do or that they can do. And there's some nice set pieces where they they move through some really interesting locations. Like there's one part where they're on a ship and they're moving across the sea where all these lost souls are. And all these weird gray bodies and they're trying to, to cling at the boat. And Max von Sydow is like their guide. So it's kind of interesting to see him in there. But the movie, it, it has a lot of interesting ideas. But it takes so long to get to where it wants to go. And there's so many flashbacks, like a bunch. And it's just kind of schmaltzy. And it's too sad at the beginning. Uh, I would have just liked it had they 
just given a little bit of his life before he's dead, and then most of the movie just him exploring this world, no flashbacks, and then, you know, him meeting up with his wife, and they could have cut, like, 40 minutes. <laughs> and then when he does meet his wife, the movie ends in a very kind of confusing, ridiculous kind of way that I didn't really like. I hear it's a little different from the book. I don't know that it's that faithful an adaptation of the book. I don't know that any Richard Matheson book has ever been faithfully adapted for the screen. But it just kind of left me feeling just, I don't know, weary from everything I'd just seen. I don't feel like they do enough with the world. I mean, Robin Williams gives a good performance. He's definitely playing more just subdued, nice guy. He's not jokey. What did you say was his profession in this? He was a doctor. He plays a doctor a lot. He plays lots of doctors. Lots of doctors and scientists. Yeah. I can think of at least four movies. Let's see. He's played a doctor in this, in Awakenings, Awakenings. Pat Adams, Nine Months. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a few others. Or at least characters with PhDs. Oh, yeah. Flubber. I I assume he has in Goodwill Hunting. He played, what, Dr. No in AI? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I think because he can play the whole... Uh, he can play like serious doctors and wacky doctors. He can play every kind of doctor. He can play foreign doctors. He's the ultimate doctor actor. <laughs> he can play any kind of doctor. But yeah, I mean the movie. It's nice to look at, you know this. But to sit down and watching the whole thing for two hours is, is a bit of a bore. I mean, I'd recommend just watching a few a few scenes. There's a there's a cool scene where he meets Max von Sydow in this this weird city where people are floating everywhere. That's a cool scene. Um, it's I I admire its ambition, but as a whole, it wasn't doing much for me. But I think it is important because, I mean, now that Robin Williams is dead, a lot of people are coming to this movie and kind of analyzing it and just you know, I mean, he's played such a nice guy, so it's like it's I guess it's fun for, or not fun, but nice for people to imagine this is what's like really happening right now to Robin Williams. They're just remembering him in a nice way in the afterlife. I don't know. I know a lot of people have been watching this. So that's why I checked it out. Okay. So, Bicentennial Man? I've never seen this one. We're going to fast forward to the cutting edge of 1999. (laughs) At this point, Ron Williams has done it all. He'd been a childish adult. He'd been a fatherly adult. He'd been literally a child adult in Jack. <laughs> um, so having finished off the human race, uh, he decided it was time to play a robot. Wouldn't be his last time playing a robot. Um, but the Bicentennial Man is another... It's another... Like, in- Interesting concept Robin Williams movie that just goes on too <laughs> long. Um, so I guess just briefly, um, it's based off of, uh, I think it's an Asimov story. Really? Isaac like Asimov? Maybe? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Um, the story about this, yes. <laughs> like an android butler. Um that this family, led by Sam Neill, the patriarch, <laughs> gets, um, which starts taking on uh, sort of 
personality traits that, that an android isn't supposed to have. Because, uh, you know, everyone knows you just get androids because you want slaves. I've, I've gone on the record several times saying, as soon as we invent androids, we're going to use them as slaves. And uh, this movie delivers on that awesome premise. Uh, except then he starts becoming a person due to just some weird quirks in his programming. Um, and it, it, this movie is kind of the story of his pursuit of personhood. Um, he works with Oliver Platt, who's like this genius scientist um, who helps him further himself on this journey um, to uh, like upgrade his programming and also to take on a more human uh, appearance uh, until the very end of the movie when he has like become human and like is aged into being an old man and like and on his on his deathbed uh, he turns 200 and like Congress says legally he's a human being and then he dies and that's the end of the movie it, oh also uh, the movie starts out with like he's he buddies up one of the first people he buddies up with is like the little girl of the family and then by the end of the movie he's like married to her granddaughter which is kind of fucked up <laughs> Um, wait, so neither of you guys have seen this? I saw it in theaters. Oh. So, it's, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, well, I guess that's the plot. The problem is this quest for personhood, um, something you can root for, but it's not... Like, I guess the idea is you watch him envy and love all the flaws that we have, you know, all, everything that makes us human. Uh, you know, he wants to age and make mistakes and be clumsy and get nervous and all these these things. We're like, well, I don't know. kind of sucks. kind of hate it when that happens. So, but it, it, to me, the movie never felt really life-affirming and the ending's kind of schmaltzy and also kind of gross that he hooks up with the granddaughter. Like a little bit. Not super gross, but a little bit. <laughs> okay. And, uh, it, you know, I guess all you really need to know about this movie is that it's directed by Chris Columbus. <laughs> yeah. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. I mean, yeah, they were frequent collaborators. They collaborated a handful of times. Is that collection out there, the Chris Columbus Robin Williams collection? Because <laughs> I think I think Nine Months was also a Chris Columbus movie. <laughs> oh, you're right. He even wrote Nine Months. Look at that. He was so close to his heart to tell the story of Hugh Grant and his wife going through pregnancy, and then Robin Williams being a crazy doctor. Nice. Put it on the list. <laughs> only seen snippets and they weren't good <laughs> I've always kind of want to see Bicentillion Man because the concept sounds so not like a family movie but yeah. it sounds like they approached it in like the worst possible way yeah, like they tried to make it a family movie which probably should not have been because yeah, it I is feel, super depressing I feel like his only real uh, obstacles are like legislative he doesn't like like 
run into like an anti-robot gang or anything. <laughs> yeah. There's no robot prejudice in this movie. I think it's mostly just like, why would you want to do that? Like Oliver Platt's like, you want a brain, but you got a microprocessor. <laughs> That's how he pronounces it. <laughs> He's got to talk really slow so the audience doesn't get confused by all the technical jargon. What is this microprocessor? This is 1999. Whoa, whoa, right? slow down. <laughs> Seriously, egghead. <laughs> Alright then. Enough about fucking bicentennial man. How about one hour photo? We talked about this once on the podcast. Uh, yeah, you uh it. it was what was that? It was the uh against type performances. Yeah. So, so are you saying this is Robin Williams's most against type performance? I mean I don't know. Uh watching all <laughs> these films I mean, he had a lot of different types. I mean, people know Robin Williams for the the manic personality, but that's the thing is like I don't know did he actually have a type he he was able to do so many different and he was good at all those it's not like yeah. he's like ever weak at a certain type of character he had a mm. very broad or you know, I mean, he had a very he had a good range yeah but I think one hour photo I don't know if it's the first but I think it's one of the first notable ones where he was not only so subdued but also kind of villainous you know mm-hmm. not intentionally it's not, I don't know if it's, I mean a little bit. But the character is he the villain of the movie? I mean, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I, I mean, he's just got kind of a twisted perception of things because he probably had a weird upbringing and he's so isolated. And I think it's just that the whole movie is so off-putting, like in a in a good way, that that's what made it seem like such a dramatic departure. I mean, this is like a thriller, and you know, he did some other thrillers, but this this might be one of the best ones he did. And he's so prominently featured. He's at the forefront. He's in every scene, and it's and it's such a haunting performance. Uh, so, if I remember correctly, the story of this movie is uh, he's the the film developer at a one hour photo store, mm-hmm. um, and he gets really caught up in in the photos he develops and. Uh, in particular, he gets like obsessed with a, a specific family, right? That's correct. And then, and then what happens? Yeah, I mean, he has more and more interactions with the family, and the family's kind of having their own drama, like with the marriage. Like the the father's kind of up to some not so good stuff. I don't want to spoil it, but okay. Robin Williams kind of finds out about that, and he doesn't like the fact that this man. He feels like the father isn't treating this family well. It's like, I could do a much better job if I was in this family. So he kind of slowly tries to involve himself in their lives. And hmm. and uh, that's and people are noticing, like, I, like, at his work, like, you know, they're like, you can't keep doing this stuff. We're going to fire you. You know, you're acting real creepy. So he's, you know, going to sacrifice, like, the one, one of the things that he loves, which is this weird photo job for this family because he doesn't have his own family. And it's sad and scary at the same time. I guess it's an interesting concept for a movie that, you know, that was like the very end of the time where you could do that concept specifically. About um, photo it, development? Yeah, because it, it's kind of weird to even think like think back to a time where it's like if you wanted to have your photos, you had to basically go let some guy or woman. Some stranger, uh, yeah. <laughs> some stranger just like see all of them. 
And you think that's creepy, but then you realize, well, today we can develop photos on ourselves because we have digital cameras, but we just put them on the internet so all strangers in the world can see them anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we really learned the lesson that this movie is trying to teach us. <laughs> Uh, but if you don't mind, John, I'd like to move on to another uh, darker Robin Williams uh, character in, in Insomnia. At least I presume so. I have not actually seen it. Okay. Yeah, I just watched it a few days ago. And it's, yeah, it's a good segue from one hour photo to Insomnia because he does play a villain in this one. There's not, well, there are some doubts about it, but yeah, he's the villain. And it's, uh, I mean, it's it's more of Al Pacino's story in this movie. He's a cop that accidentally kills his partner, uh, basically Fargo style. There's there's a lot of mist in the air. Oh, Fargo the show. Fargo the TV show, not the See, movie. See, when you say Fargo style, I still think, okay, put him in a wood. That's what I thought, too. <laughs> I'd seen it, and I, that's what I thought. He accidentally that's puts his partner in a wood chipper. <laughs> Whoops. He tries to, like, push him out of the way of, like, something. And he actually pushes him into a wood Okay. What a way to open a movie that would be. (laughs) And then the blood splatters, and it, like, makes the title. (laughs) (laughs) Man. Be one hell of a thrill ride of a movie. But uh, Insomnia is not really that. It's a sort of a more subdued thriller, but still a pretty tense and effective one, I think. Um, and basically, Robin Williams was the guy that they were chasing when uh, when Al Pacino accidentally shot his partner. And so Robin Williams is like, I know what you did, Al Pacino. And so they just have like lots of like really sort of intense phone conversations where they're discussing like who has the upper hand with each other how they're sort of adapting to their own situations since both of them could be tried as criminals and it's it's interesting to see those like especially those phone conversations and then even the scenes they have together just because it is Al Pacino and Robin Williams two guys that are known to go pretty big when they want to but that's not really the way they're used in this movie and you know even Robin Williams in this one even though I guess as I said he is basically the villain it's still kind of gray because he's a character who kind of accidentally was brought to this sort of emotional state where he ended up killing a young girl but you still you do almost kind of side with him since you feel like he is just like a a mostly normal guy who just kind of accidentally had this thing that happened to him and there's a nice you know duality with the two characters sort of having to grapple with you know who's a bad guy and who's 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 doing the right thing it's a pretty good movie Christopher Nolan okay maybe his most underseen movie i don't know so i gotta ask because uh people always make the comparison between the two who plays off robin williams better robert de niro or al pacino (laughs) 
Can I perhaps uh, get between maybe. that with maybe? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go it. No, I was going to say with maybe an easier question before you answer that question. <laughs> In this one movie, who? I mean, this is a little different, but who do you think is better? You put two heavyweights against each other, Robin Williams and Al Pacino. I'm always interested in movies where you get two big actors and you put them in scenes together. Like, who comes off as more impressive performance-wise? Or are they pretty even? Well, I think they're both good. It's weird because I think with the Robin Williams performance, you can kind of feel that he's trying to maybe play against his persona a bit in that he's I don't know like he's trying to go for some darkness which is maybe something that doesn't come as naturally to Robin Williams and Al Pacino he's doing the kind of role that he's done quite a few times before as like a you know a ragged cop Mm -hmm. he's done it in Serpico he's done it in Heat so I don't know it's hard it's harder to judge the performances since Robin Williams it's a tougher performance, I think, for him to give. But Al Pacino, it's like he's he's done this before. I like he's in the opposite of the danger zone. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I like them both in it, though. And that's Sean's question that I interrupted. You, you know, what's the better screen dynamic in those two movies, in your opinion? Everybody knows acting just comes down to Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. <laughs> so if we're truly going to measure the metal of Robin Williams, it's got to be through the lens of those two actors. I mean, I haven't seen Insomnia as recently, but uh, just from the fact that Awakenings, Robert De Niro was Oscar nominated, that and... Um, he, they're, they're friends in that movie, Awakenings, yeah. not enemies. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think I tend to lean towards that one more, too, just because of that. We all know Colin prefers Robert De Niro anyway. Oh, I mean, they reunited true. for the big wedding later, too. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. One of the several times he played a reverend. Slash whatever that rank of priestess mm-hmm. alright we'll leave that as part of a mystery and instead talk about Death to Smoochie cause this is again the weird part of Rob Williams career um, are you guys familiar with the premise of Death to Smoochie uh, I, I, I saw it a while ago so yeah but I mean you can I've, give a brief yeah I have not seen recap. it okay um do you remember how in Mrs. Doubtfire there was like the super boring guy who had the kids show and then he gets fucking knocked off so they can make Mrs. Doubtfire into a show? Mm-hmm. It's basically like that where Robin Williams is the host of a kids show um, and well, he doesn't it's not just that uh, Smoochie's more popular uh, it's that like he gets like busted by the FBI but <laughs> The end result is that he loses uh, when his his show was on and Smooshy takes over. Um, and so Robin Williams launches this campaign to kill uh, Smoochy, played by Edward Norton, who is basically, um, you know, a Sesame Street slash, you know, any kid's Barney. show. Barney, I guess is, yeah. 
He pretty much exactly is Barney. <laughs> he plays a purple that, dinosaur. He's a more he? folksy Barney. He's though. a rhino, and he's uh, like kind of pink. Okay. But yeah, it's pretty close. Um, but it's it's the story of like how this how this Robin Williams character is like he's on this kid show, but he's like actually like this like the darkest person imaginable. Like he's like involved in the mob and he like making weird like drug deals with like the parents for, he's like he's doing all sorts of fucked up stuff and he, and then he's you know he just wants to kill Edward Norton real bad and the whole movie is Rob Williams like obsessively hunting down um, Edward Norton who I feel like in the movie is like in his smoochy costume like almost all the time <laughs> like not not just on the show um it's it's a Dane DeVito movie and you know it's he, he hasn't directed a ton, but he, he has a certain uh, demented uh, vision of the world in, in each of his films, I think. And, and this I've seen I've seen Matilda. Yeah. <laughs> well, like throw Mama from the train. All right. War of the Roses. So it's 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 like that. Uh, it's not a particularly great movie. In fact, I think most people kind of hate it. I don't remember having such a negative reaction to it. I remember feeling like it was it was fine, um, but I was young and naive. It's it's this a, is 2002. It's a great premise. It's just it's not super funny, and it, I feel like it was really negative. Oh yeah. In that, and I feel like nobody's really getting what they want. But it does have a good cast, you know: Edward Norton, Rob Williams, Danny Vito, Catherine Keener, John Stewart, Harvey Fierstein. Playing against type, if I recall. He's like a criminal, and he's pretty serious. Is he a straight guy? <laughs> I don't know, I guess. Does he talk about <laughs> calling his father instead? <laughs> I'm gonna call my father about this. See what words he has to say about the situation. But That's a really uh, great straight hunt. <laughs> felt pretty good. It's just not as fun to be around. Mm-hmm. No, you know there's something off there. He's just not being the man he wants to be. Oh, Harvey Fierstein's okay. I haven't seen him in a while. <laughs> Such a delightful person. Mm-hmm. God, what is he doing? I don't know. And we finally <laughs> get to the last film on our list of Ron Williams movies we've seen and wanted to talk about. And it's World's Greatest Dad. Uh, very dark uh, comedy. Yeah, I'm going to let John talk about it because he has a very specific idea how much plot we're allowed to reveal. <laughs> and you don't? No, I don't know why I do. <laughs> We've both seen the movie. I might go too far. Um, yeah, I will say that there's a dark twist very early on in this movie, so there's not a lot we can, we can talk about. But... Uh, Basically, I'll give a brief uh, synopsis. Uh, Rob Williams is this uh, English teacher at a high school, really unfulfilled. Like he feels like he's really talented, but he's just surrounded by complete morons all the time in, in, his, in his class, and he can never really rise to what he wants to become. And he has this son played by uh, Daryl Sabara, who's just like the biggest asshole ever, and he hates his dad. And his dad tries so hard to connect with him, and they just can't. And uh, there's an incident that kind of changes that relationship and also changes Robin Williams' 
what he wants to like accomplish in his life. It happens pretty early in the movie, so I can't. I don't want to touch on that because it is. It's it's pretty surprising. Like I did not see it coming at all, and it's worth checking out. This movie is widely available. It's on Netflix, I believe. Um, so I will interject here to mention. You said Dale Sabar, like that's a name people know. Is the kid from the Spy Kids movies? I mean, he's done okay. other stuff. Uh, I mean, sure, but that's that's what I recognize yeah. him from, and that's what makes it fun to see him playing this foul mouth, sex obsessed teenager. Is like I oh, used to. You you could have been something. But instead, you're a monster. You could have been a spy kid. You could have been a spy kid. You could have saved the world four times. Twice in 3D. <laughs> but And Robin Williams is playing more the sensitive type again. He's very defeated and kind of depressed in this movie. Uh, maybe closer to what he was kind of like in real life. I don't know. Uh, and it's also a Bobcat Goldthwait movie. Which is interesting because it wasn't until this movie that I, I I was aware he even made films. I think he's made four movies. Uh, I've seen two of them. They're both very dark, but both really interesting. Like he's he's got some really uh, I don't know if I'd say controversial, but extreme uh, opinions about things that go on in the world and how he'd you know uh, change them or just interact with them. And he's a very interesting director. He's very dark humorist and. Uh, uh, I, I, I look forward to see where his career will go. It's a shame that he can't work with Robin Williams again because I know they were friends and they have a great uh, dynamic here. Um, so that's really yeah, interesting. It, it's, it's interesting, Robin Williams' character. You know, I guess you could say he's sort of like the the real world version of his Dead Poet Society character where he, like, he feels like he's a great teacher and you know it's like he could... <laughs> be making a difference in the world. I guess it's more he feels like he should be a great writer than, like, really get to, to these kids. Um, but he, he's, like, not not so great at, at anything that he does. And I guess... <laughs> I guess we're not spoiling well, it. I feel, so. I feel like I know the thing that you guys are spoiling. Yeah. But am I allowed to spoil it? <laughs> I mean, if you want. I don't care. I mean, I it's up to you. Well, I feel like Colin's guest. I feel player. like I, well, like the kid commits suicide, doesn't he? Yeah. And then Robin Williams like writes a suicide note, and he uses that to his advantage. So you you knew exactly what it was. Okay. <laughs> well, exactly. except except let's be clear, it, it was an accidental suicide. Okay. Um, Der- David Carradine style, he was trying to oh, uh, <laughs> autoerotic asphyxiate himself, yeah. and it turned into an accidental suicide. So there's a hilarious, also alarmingly uh, disturbing and, and dark scene where Ron Williams walks in on his son and he thinks he's walked in on him masturbating, but he actually has walked in on his corpse and he has to deal with the cleanup of that situation, which leads to him you know, trying to redeem his son by writing the suicide note. Um, but it, it, instead it becomes the story of like his secret desire to be uh this this suicide note like touches the whole school everybody loves it and they all suddenly turn his son into like this hero this like everybody loved this guy even though everyone hated him um and he wants the credit for that because it's like i wrote this i finally i'm getting the the attention that i deserve for having written this this thing but he can't admit to it without 
tearing everything apart, and uh, it's it's that tension that propels most of the movie. And it comes to a interesting climax, which I guess we will leave as a mystery. Yeah, I don't know about the interesting climax. <laughs> I can't spoil that. But it's it's a really like ballsy, bold film. I think that's what I admire about it. Like it takes such a dark turn early on, and then I stay with it the rest of the way. Like there's still enough humor, and it's a kind of an interesting, uh, just how this character progresses through this incident. Kind of interesting character study. I think that's what I admire about it. Same thing I admire about uh, Bobcat Goldthwait's follow-up film, God Bless America, which I'd also recommend. I think that's also on Netflix. If I don't know if you guys have seen that, Sean. I remember wanting to see it, and then it just never happened. It's the one where the guy basically is tired of uh, pop culture and decides to just start killing whoever he wants. Yeah, Joel, right? Joel Murray, he's fantastic. Like He's a super nice guy, but then he finds out he's got like a brain tumor. And then he, he just thinks about all the people in the world that are so mean and negative, like American Idol-type judges and people like that, and how they get to keep going. So he decides he's going to go on a killing spree, killing all the like the bad people that he feels like are corrupting society. Really interesting movie. Yeah. So that's good? That, that turned out well? I mean, I liked it. It's, I mean, I feel like it kind of divides audiences, just like this movie does. But, you know. Well, no matter what, that's one that will stick with you when you see it. Yeah, It's, it's, it's worth checking out. I, I'm sure Robin Williams liked it. I feel like it would have been up his alley. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's weird to think about how how it will feel to watch this movie now, knowing that you know he may have killed himself by hanging himself too, mm-hmm. dealt with his own. You know, I don't even want to talk about that. Let's yeah, just um, are we, do. You, do you want to make a top ten list? We have twelve movies. Uh, based on the way I felt we were talking about some of these, I took some off. I narrowed it down to 12. Why not? Let's make a list. Okay. Uh, Out of these 12... I'm going to take, take Garp off as well. Yeah. It's only I saw it, and I was a little disappointed. Guess... So, uh, while we're thinking, I'll just read the list as it is right now. It's Good Morning Vietnam, Dead Post Society, Awakenings, The Fisher King, Aladdin, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Birdcage, Goodwill Hunting, One Hour Photo, Insomnia, World's Greatest Dad. Any of those feel kind of out of place? Gosh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I really like World's Greatest Dad, but maybe it's not considered like a classic because I know that all these are classics but I don't know that it has as big a place I don't know I feel like I've heard quite a few people praise it I don't know since... I mean these are all good mm. <laughs> for the most part I think so I don't know <laughs> Mrs. Doubtfire is in its own category. yeah it's in, a, Leave it alone. it's in a league of its own <laughs> whatever it's great <laughs> just somehow it's great even though make no sense it's, yeah i i watched that movie picking holes in it and i was still enwrapped with <laughs> everything i saw i could not get enough of the uh, subhuman creation interacting with children okay uh we'll, we'll also lower for me on this list like i said I, th- I think i like all these movies i remember not being a real big fan of Death Post Society. I mean, I know it's one of his most important movies, but I always thought it was a little schmaltzy. But uh, I, I suppose it has its place. And Insomnia, 
not because it's not good, but just because I feel like even though Robin Williams is very prominent, I feel like it's more Al Pacino's. It's true. Show. You you don't really see Robin Williams until like halfway into the movie. So I guess the one that stood out to me and is is one hour photo because I always thought it was more just like uh, it like not that it's bad, but more it's like it's good and also just really interesting because it's Robin Williams going creepy. But you're saying it it legitimately stands among these other ten films. I mean, I think so. At least for me, I'm a big fan. Because we could also give it the only you saw it bump. Is that is that is that right? Gosh, we should have. I own it. <laughs> I mean, I don't know because I, I feel it like it and Insomnia are pretty similar films, but one hour photo you get more. Can we do a slashy? <laughs> one hour photo slash. Insomnia? I mean, I suppose the I Robin pick, Williams I pick one hour photo slot. over Insomnia, but. Let's do that. Let's do a slashy. Yeah, we don't have to cut anything. Though. Like a, like a bunch of cowards. You guys really should see one hour photo. Okay. Yeah. It's almost Hitchcockian and it's the way it's put together. So world's greatest dad at ten then. Sure. And then the slashy, or then I don't know. How I feel like both feel those movies are. We maybe we like them better than Dead Poet Society. Yeah, I mean, I'm reluctant to put it low because I know it's so important to people, but it's not as important to me. I don't think it's that important to any of us. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I think for people who really care about literature, it's like the greatest movie of all time. Um, or people and maybe, that... And maybe for people who, like, didn't feel like they fit in or just had, had, just had it kind of rough. It means more, but... Pretty easy. Yeah, because we fit in. We were the cool kids. We were the coolest of kids. <laughs> uh, I guess we could do the slashy next. Yeah, so that's one hour photo Ooh. and insomnia. Yes. Anyone forgot? At number eight. And number eight. I guess I could go Good Morning Vietnam. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's a classic, it's kind of disjointed movie. Hmm. I feel like from this point on, most of these movies are pretty well structured, and that one, like maybe Robin Williams himself, is fairly Im- improvisational almost in the way it comes together, so I think it's, it's deserving of that spot. Um, I think the birdcage would fit in around at this this point. I don't know okay. if I have any particular reason why. Maybe because if we're just talking about solely Robin Williams' performances, it's hard for that one to stand up against some of these other ones. I mean, Awakenings is a really good movie, but not necessarily because Robin Williams. Like, he's he's definitely good. But a lot of people could have been good in that role, so that's probably around here, too. If we're, okay. if we're judging yeah, it on that but reason. We're, we're talking about this as Robin Williams movies. So let's put Awakenings at five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've pretty much we've got like his probably his two most famous roles in Aladdin and Mrs. Doubtfire. Uh, obviously, Jack didn't make the cut, but <laughs> it's a heart wrenching and beautiful performance. I'm sure. I, I, I know it's one that a lot of people associate him with. Um, 
And then we've got Goodwill Hunting, the Academy Award winning performance, Sounds and like his, his two most critically acclaimed <laughs> movies. Yeah. God, you know, Goodwill Hunting is probably a better movie than Mrs. Doubtfire, but for some reason I want to put Mrs. Doubtfire ahead of it. <laughs> probably, it's for sentimental <laughs> reasons. Quite obviously, but yeah, that gets in the way. What do you, how do you guys feel about Aladdin now? Uh, like, I got this weird thing where it's like, I don't really want to go back and watch all these classic Disney cartoons. Really? Like, I, until I, I have kids or something. <laughs> That's pretty much how I feel. That's what I've been doing with this summer. I've watched a lot of huh. second-tier Disney, and it's like, I should be watching the first-tier Disney. What am I doing? Those are great. Watch them, like, Fox and the Hound. <laughs> well, like, Great Bass Detective. Yeah. Uh, I finally caught not up bad, with Frozen, not bad. guys. You caught up with it. What? With Frozen. I watched it at 1 a.m. on Saturday night with my dad. That's how you do it. We did not watch the sing-along version, which wasn't awesome. <laughs> I bet your dad would have gotten into it. Let it go. Personally, yeah, I'd go Goodwill Hunting next. But uh, I don't know. I like Aladdin a lot, and it's still... I saw it just a year ago, so it's still fresh, it's really fresh in my mind. I think it definitely holds up. But if you guys are like, you know, just feel like you haven't revisited it recently enough, I mean, we can put it lower. I know it's like maybe his most famous role, but I also feel like he's like not pretty far from being main cast. Like he's clearly a supporting character in that movie. It's true. Where with these other three, he's at least the co-star. I mean, if you want to go by that logic, you can put Aladdin next and I'll be fine with it. But Aladdin is real good. This is like, like I guess it's between Goodwill Hunting and Aladdin right now. Yeah. The three and four. Oh my gosh. No and... way we could possibly put Step Fire that low. <laughs> Would not be acceptable. And it's like such a difficult comparison because they're appealing <laughs> to me on like for almost opposite reasons. Yeah. How many times have you guys seen Goodwill Hunting? Twice. I think I've seen it once. How many times do you think you've seen Aladdin? A lot. I don't know. At least ten. I mean, I had yeah. the, uh, the the really thick VHS. You know, they had the they came in those thick cases. Yeah, oh, yeah. that special like Disney only. I, well, no, there's other movies that came in cases like that, but I think it's because a big case is more appealing for a kid. It's like, ooh, <laughs> yeah. that's big. I want that. And the cardboard ones, little kids just wreck. <laughs> I accidentally sit on it. Like, whoops. Whatever it takes. Squashed it. So let's put Goomba Hunting at four because. Aladdin gets the childhood familiar. Childhood interest, bump. I think. Yeah. Um, so I would put The Fisher King at number one. Then Me it too. It's down to it and Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, I mean, Mrs. Doubtfire holds... It has a place in my heart, but Fisher King is uh, is better. It's <laughs> actually a good movie. It's for so many reasons. <laughs> and again, I feel like especially now, knowing a, a little more about what Romulan's life was like that movie is especially resonant mm-hmm. um, 
I had a great time watching it. So our top ten Robin Williams performances, I guess we'll call this. Mm-hmm. Number ten, World's Greatest Dad. Number nine, Dead Poet Society. Number eight, Slashy, One Hour Photo and Insomnia. Or One Hour Photo slash Insomnia. Uh, number seven, Good Morning Vietnam. That was pretty weak. Uh, <laughs> number six, The Birdcage. Number five, Awakenings. Number four, Goodwill Hunting. Number three, Aladdin. Number two, this is Deathfire, and number one, The Fisher King, which is a story about everything, and from Arthurian legend, which is interesting. Um, if you are at least mildly interested in some things, perhaps you would like to be mildly pleased by reading our blog at mildlypleased.com. Colin Proud an obituary for Robin Williams, which you can read. I mean, sure. we don't do a ton of those. Only for um, the really important people. Yeah, I feel bad for the other celebrities that have died in between <laughs> Robin Williams and us recording this podcast. Yeah. So, uh, Don Pardo and... Um, Lauren Bacall. Lauren Bacall. Rest in peace. Uh, we'll miss you. Um... And in a, to a much lesser extent, uh, hopefully you'll miss us as we uh, leave you now. Uh, but worry not, as long as you subscribe to us on iTunes, or, or again, go to mildlypleased.com. Uh, we'll be back with more content for you to listen to. So uh, hold on and remember that there's plenty of happy things in the world, too. And everything's going to be okay. That's probably a patch out. <laughs> I thought you were going to go for something inspirational like Dead Poet Society, but you just kind of went really generic. <laughs> oh. Carpe diem. Well, Alibaba had them 40 thieves. Sherry's out, he had a thousand tails. Master you in luck, cause up your sleeves. You got a brand of magic never fails. You got some power in your corner now. Heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch. Job you and house. All you gotta do is rub that lamp. And I'll say, Mr. Lanza, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. Life <laughs> is your restaurant, and I'm your melody. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. Yes, sir, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shah. Say what you wish, it's yours. True dish about a little more baklava. Have some of column A, try all of column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. Wow.